0: Well, I know some of you guys are real excited to finally be moving on past Matthew 8:22 because we've been stuck there. It's almost like we've, we hit a roadblock for about four weeks, but now we're moving on to 8:23 all the way up through 9.8. And it's really a, this is the second triplet in the series of three triplets. It's a three miracles and a response. Three miracles and a response three miracles in a response in chapters 8 and 9. If you remember, the purpose of Matthew writing is he's revealing the Messiah, the king, the one who was prophesied about, the the one that the people were looking forward to him coming. And he reveals first his genealogical qualifications in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He he reveals the fact that the supernatural component of uh, his qualifications, all these fulfilled prophecies. The prophetic qualifications were there. He fulfilled over 300 specific prophecies. There were hundreds of years before he was born. Things he had no ability to control as an infant, but he had every ability to control as the God of the universe. And so it revealed those qualifications. He was uh, revealed that he was spiritually qualified. He went out in the desert, he was tempted. And three times he resisted Satan to prove that he was pure because he was God in the flesh. He called these men to follow him. Then he started healing people. Then he went up on a mountain to teach them and proved his theological qualifications when he dissected the hypocrisy of the Pharisees in front of everybody. And he said, listen, you've been teaching about the external, focusing on the external. It's about the internal. It's not that you just don't physically commit adultery. It's that when you look at a woman, you lust after. It's not that you don't just murder somebody. It's that you hate people in your heart. And he just destroyed their religious hypocrisy in front of them, what they were teaching, how they had twisted and perverted God's law. And then in chapter 6, what he did is he destroyed what they were doing, their religious acts. They're giving, they're praying, and they're fasting. And then in chapter 7, he lays out, many of you think that you're in the kingdom simply because you're Jewish. Many of you think you're in there because you're doing these religious things. Many are going to say, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, depart, for I never knew you. It's a terrible, terrible line in the Bible, but it's a true line. And he said that to him. And then in chapter uh, 8, we saw he comes down from the mountain. And when he comes down, he authenticates everything he'd been saying by healing people. Because in the Old Testament, it had said he's going to heal our diseases. And one of the diseases that they had been waiting for for years and years and years. In fact, there was a court in the temple called the court of the lepers that no cleansed leper had ever been in. And the the different religious leaders, the Pharisees, had argued and they talked about it from the Mishnah, saying that the Messiah is going to heal a leper one day and then he's going to worship right here. That's going to be the sign. That's why Jesus told the leper, go to the temple. Go to the temple. When he goes to the temple, he's going to fulfill that prophecy. He's going to fulfill that prophecy. Because remember, not every prophecy was recorded for us. There were prophecies that were prophesied that were orally passed down. This is what God revealed to us through his written word. But there was a long oral tradition before there was a written tradition. And God put that into, he put it into print. But the Mishnah, they, they were talking about this court of the leper. So Jesus heals the leper and what do people do? He doesn't even go to the temple. What he does is he starts telling people he's so excited that he's cleansed. And then Jesus goes and a Roman centurion who God had already been drawing sent some elders to him to have his uh, servant healed. And he healed that servant just speaking and it happened. Then he healed Peter's mother-in-law. There were other people that were came and they had demons and they had sickness and he healed it. It says he healed our diseases and everybody wanted to follow. Even a scribe says I'll follow you anywhere. And he says no, nope, no you won't because the birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's not going to be comfortable, so he goes silent. You don't hear anything in response. Then Jesus says, you, you follow me. Well, first let me go bury my dad. He says, let the dead bury the dead. Well, you know, you follow me. Well, I'll follow you, but first let me go say goodbye. You're not fit to be in my kingdom if you put your hands to the plow and you turn around and look back. Three distinct responses of conditional Lordship, conditional following. They qualified the Lordship of Jesus, and we can't do that. It shows a heart that's not surrendered to Him. And somewhere along the way in America, we have created a dichotomy just come to Jesus to get saved. You don't have to come to Him to be the Lord of your life. We've created that dichotomy that was never, you don't see that here anywhere. It's not in here. We've created that because what we want to do is we want to assure people that their relatives are in heaven because someday they prayed a prayer. They raised a hand. They were baptized. Some element that communicated that they believed in some way. The demons believe, it says in the Bible. The demons believe. They even shudder. And we've created this false dichotomy and and what happens is Jesus, Jesus knows the heart. He knows the heart. And so he addresses these people that come up under false pretenses. You see, they only want to be part of the crowd, the part of the the good stuff. They're not surrendered and really trusting. But what Jesus did is he selected guys and he said, I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. I want you to follow me. And these guys followed him. And it says that these men, it says when we looked at last week, it says when Jesus saw a crowd, he gave orders to go over the other side. That was where we started, remember, and then we had that little four-week <laughs> hiatus there where we camped out on the responses. But remember, he said, where was Jesus going? He was going away from the crowd. He was never about the the, the long, wide shallow. He was always about going deep. That's why this is so important, guys. That's why meeting one-on-one, coming, going deep is important. Because he's not about big crowds. He's really not. He's about going deep. And so he says, let's go away from the crowds. And when he takes the disciples, they go out in the boat. And you know what happens? In the Old Testament, there was a guy who was told to go do something, and he didn't do it, and what happened to him? He was in a storm. Because he disobeyed, God got his attention. These guys are following, and what happens? He brings a storm in their life. Reminds me of Bob Buford. He says, okay, Lord, I'm gonna be fully committed to you and his son dies. You don't know what God's gonna do in your life or allow in your life. And that's why we come to him with no preset conditions. We don't come to him. We're not God. We don't know the plan. We don't know what he's gonna do. When I was in the Marine Corps, when I was going through training, they had this thing called the confidence course. And it had all these obstacles on it. You remember that? Did y'all do that, Steve? Yeah, and you look at one of them, I hated Man, one of them, it was this real tall looking like, thing like a ladder. And, and each, each step you got higher up that, I mean, and it wasn't a ladder. I mean, the, the beams were that big. But the space got wider and wider. I mean, obviously it was wider at the bottom, but, but when you got up to the top, that thing would sway. And I mean, we were, I don't know, 30, 40, maybe even 50 feet up. that's pretty high when you're climbing and, and there's no ropes, there's no attachments, you're just climbing over it. It's a confidence course. A lot of guys didn't want to do that. But when you go up and you go over the obstacle and you come down the other side, what happens? It builds your confidence, right? Jesus took these disciples through a confidence course. Every step of the way for three and a half years, He was building into them. There was nothing without purpose. And so He takes them into the boat And he goes to sleep on the cushion. But God never sleeps. He never slumbers. He knew exactly what was going on. And sometimes I think, we think he's asleep at the wheel in our life. We think that our life starts falling apart and we think, where's God? Does he not care? The same thing they said. And there's three things in this long little trilogy Of stories of Jesus doing something that that he reveals one is that he's Lord he's King over the physical world we live in there is no aspect of the physical world that he's not Lord of and and that's pretty clear in what he he reveals here the second thing is he's King and Lord over the supernatural world that we can't even see and if you don't believe there's a supernatural world get on a plane and come over with me to India And and you'll start to see that there is a supernatural world that we don't acknowledge a lot of times, but it is real, is the world that we live in that we can touch this stuff. And then the last story, he shows that he's King and Lord over sin. He is King and Lord over it. He has all authority over it. And sometimes I think we forget that. We feel helpless. We feel like, we, feel like we, we can't defeat it. But He can. He can defeat any sin that we have to deal with. And He's gonna make that clear. He's gonna show us that. So let's read the passage in Matthew 8, starting in verse 23. And when He got into the boat, His disciples followed Him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves But he was asleep, and they went and they woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose, and he rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away to the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. And getting into a boat, he crossed over, and he came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he addressed it. Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. Now when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. Three miracles, three responses. You know, Chuck's been with me over to the Sea of Galilee I don't know if any of, you else, any of you other guys have been there. Brad's going. It's about 600 feet below sea level and it's covered by mountains around it. And what happens is, it is one of the most studied bodies of water in the world. Storms can whip up in a moment there because of just the, the way the layout of the land is and all the, 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 the air masses and the way the, the weather works over there. And here's the thing. That storm whipped up on that lake in such a quick way. I mean, Jesus was asleep. I mean, and He's not in a big boat. I mean, it's not like a yacht. I mean, we're we're talking a little, like a hollowed out almost canoe. Maybe a little bigger than that. We get this picture of Him and all 12. I don't even think all 12 guys were in one boat. I think there were multiple boats. Because when you go and you see the kind of boats they were in, they might of all 12, but more than likely, all of them weren't in that boat. But I can bet Peter, James, and John were in that boat. And what, what do you think happened as Jesus slept and the water starts popping over the side? What do you think goes on? If you were a fisherman, these guys were fishermen. They've been out in the water before. You think they'd never been in a storm before? That's what they did. What do you think they did? they okay. freaking yeah. Well, they were upset, but do you think they might not have been trying to bail water out? You think? Because by the time, listen, Steve, you were in the Marine Corps. When you're in the Marine Corps, if a general's sleeping, what do you do? You don't wake him. You try to figure it out on your own, right? Until it gets to the point where you can't do it anymore. I really believe, because of the panic in their voice when they go to him, you know, that these men, first of all, Jesus was a carpenter before he was out there with them, right? Why would fishermen consult with a carpenter to get him to help them figure out how to navigate and deal with a boat out on a lake in the middle of a storm? They knew who he was in a sense. But they probably tried everything they could on their own. To and they couldn't do it. It was overwhelming. It, in one passage, it said it, the, the word for storm is almost like a demonic force. I think that's in Mark. But in this passage, the word is seismos, and it means, it means like we get the, the word seismograph from it. It's shaking. It's like a great shaking going on. And so there they are. They're in the boat, and Jesus is asleep. But even though He's asleep, who created the universe? He did you know what it says in Colossians it says he holds the world together he holds everything together even in his sleep even though his physical body sleeping he holds everything together do you realize the Sun has 500 million million billion horsepower How they determine that, I don't know. But some wacko guy figured that out. 500 million, million, billion horsepower. And the guy that created it is in the boat with them. But in their mind, he didn't care. In their mind, he's asleep. And and when they go to approach him, they scream. And if you go look in Mark and you look in Luke, it's, don't you care? Master, we're perishing. They're screaming at him. Have you ever been woken up by somebody screaming? It's not pleasant. But they're screaming. And he wakes up and he says, Why are you so afraid? Oh, you of little faith. And it's not like the same little faith where he says, If you only have the faith, the grain of a mustard seed. You know what he says here? This little faith means a distrust in God's ability. Do we struggle with that? You see, the disciples were taught the Scriptures growing up. They were Jewish, right? All Jewish kids were taught the Scriptures. If you look back in Jeremiah chapter 51, they would have been taught this from the scrolls. Jeremiah 51, 15, It is He who made the earth by His power, who established the world by His wisdom, and by His understanding stretched out the heavens. When He utters His voice, there is a tumult of water in the heavens. He makes the mist rise from the ends of the earth. He makes lightning for the rain. He brings forth the wind from His storehouse. Every man is stupid and without knowledge. Every goldsmith is put to shame by his idols, for his images are false and there is no breath in them. They are worthless, a work of delusion. At the time of their punishment, they shall perish. So what is he saying? God is all-powerful. God is all-powerful. Over in Psalm, they would have known this psalm. Psalm 89, 8 and 9. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as You are, O Lord, With your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Did they forget that? They didn't realize He was God, that God, but they knew He was sent from God. Right. And if you go back and you look at stories like Elisha, when he takes his servant, and his servant's terrified, and he said, Lord, open up his eyes to see. And he looks out and there's angels all around, chariots of fire. So he showed him. There were stories like that. They knew that. The point is, they panicked. This is not a, it's okay Peter, you almost had it. This is a rebuke. They had seen him cleanse a leper. They had seen him heal Peter's mother-in-law. Seen him turn water into wine. And they're out in the boat and they're like, "Lord, don't you care?" That that is the problem. You see what should have happened is Excuse me. Lord, it's storming out here. Could you could you do something, please? Not, nah, "Don't you care that we're perishing?" That's the response. Now, they were in training. Though. You know, we're in training. We're in spiritual rehab this side of heaven. And so the point being, with God, failures never final. What does He do? We learn through the failures and He's growing them through this. But it says, he, when He says to them, why are you so afraid? The, the way He says it to them there is like, guys, You should not be afraid. You're with me. And the point is for us today is when we walk through life, we have Christ. When we go through, the the issue for most of us is we're going to go through storms. The issue is are we going to trust God when He takes us into storms we don't want to go into? That's really the issue. The issue is these guys, it came up on them quick. You see, if you got time to plan it and you can think about it, and he says, okay, guys, I'm going to take you out in the storm, and, and I'm going to be with you, they, we have a comfort level. But all of a sudden, he's asleep, and we're like, does he know what's going on? See, he's not surprised. When the stock market falls 500 points, 1,000 points, it's not, it doesn't surprise him. You know, when North Korea launches a nuke, It's not surprising to him. Nothing surprises him. When Pearl Harper happened, it didn't surprise God. Now the people that call themselves believers were devastated when some of those things happened. They 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 were really, really in anguish. And he says, shh, and it calmed immediately. Why? Because God's revealing that Jesus is Lord over the physical. He stilled it with his voice, just like he said back in Psalm 8, 89, 89. And here's what's so amazing the power of Christ was demonstrated. And you know what their response was? You know what's scarier than being in an earthquake shaking moment in a boat, a little boat in the middle of Galilee, is being in the presence of the God who created everything as a sinful person, realizing your sin. That's scary. And at that moment, it says, they marveled, saying, what sort of man is this who can command the sea and the waves? You see, I think they were starting to get a glimpse. This is not just another prophet. This is not just another messenger sent by God. They didn't get it all the way until after the resurrection, but he was giving glimpses. And, And look, Peter says, you're the Christ. You are the one. But see, they had a different image of what that would look like. Nobody expected him to be a suffering servant. Nobody expected him to be a sleeping servant at that moment. And so when he was asleep, it confused them. But that's why we have this here. Matthew is saying, listen, he stilled the water. But then he takes him right into the supernatural realm because in that area, in the area around Galilee, there were there was a lot of demonic possession. In fact, if you look through the Bible, I don't think you'll find one demon-possessed person in Jerusalem. I think they're all up in the Galilee or the Decapolis or in that area. They're usually in rural areas. Probably kicked them out of Jerusalem. They made them all go out to the, there. But, but you don't see any stories about demon-possessed people. The, the term demon-possessed in here means really somebody who is under the control of a demon. And, and it can affect their speech. There were demon-muted people. It could affect their body. There were demon-paralyzed people. Maybe they could be blind. Demon-blinded people. So, so the demons had a real influence. When, when's the last time you thought about that? In our culture, we don't think about it very much, Chip, here in this country. We think it's spooky, spooky, you know, like... Stuff we don't, we don't like thinking about things we can't explain. Have you ever seen somebody... I've seen some people over in Russia and Africa that, that were under the influence. It's scary. We don't have to be afraid, but it's scary to witness, to watch the influence. And you know what? A demon is very strong. Some of these pastors that flippantly say, I'm just going to cast this demon out with some kind of joy. The laughing joking way do you know that one angel in the old testament in second kings wiped out over 100,000 people one angel one angel that same power is in demons too but it's under the control of the lord that's why these men that we read about in the other passages you read they were shackled with chains and they broke the chains could you imagine terry if you put handcuffs on a guy when you're in the FBI and you just watch him go that would be a little disconcerting, wouldn't it, Steve? And it happens. You know what? There are people, I remember they showed us a training video when we were going through the academy of a guy that was not on drugs, not on alcohol. Pure rage that killed two police officers in Louisiana. He had been shot like 12 times. Pete Solis shot a guy 22 times. How do you keep going? How do you know these guys didn't have a demon in we don't know. I think that stuff happens far more than we think. And Jesus has control over the supernatural. There's a pastor out west in uh, the northwest who is, he actually has been called in several times. And you know what he does? He will go up to the person and he will actually talk to the demon in the name of Jesus. He will say, In the name of Jesus, I command you. To reveal who you are and the demons will talk through that person and they will say a name or say who they are and he will ask things and 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 like if they're cussing the person is cussing and sometimes they'll do that he'll say in the name of Jesus I command you to stop using that kind of filthy language and they will stop but he's the real deal he's not a pretender he's not he's not a quack he's a real guy who really loves the Lord who really has been called to do this. Now I've never personally witnessed anybody do that. And what I'm saying is Jesus is King and Lord over the supernatural. Demons tempt. Demons affect the physical. They affect the spiritual and emotional, the mental. And you see it all in Scripture. And they're not to be toyed with. The sons of Skeva found that out over in Acts 19. They went and tried to exorcise demons. And they beat the tar out of them. And you know what? Jesus never exercised a demon. You know that? Jesus just said, go. Jesus gave commands and they responded. And true, true followers of Jesus, you don't have to do rituals. Or exor- or exorcism is a ritual. You don't have to do a ritual. Jesus is an authority over every demon. And, and guess who you represent when you're out in the world? We are his ambassadors. We don't have to fear. You do not have to fear. You stand firm and you stand up unashamedly for Jesus Christ. In His name. The demons know. You know what's funny? They go to the sons of Sceva. They go, Paul, I know, but I don't know you. Isn't that interesting that they said that? Why? Because Paul was the real deal. And i tell you what. The fakes... They better be careful. They'll end up like the sons of Sceva. and get a whipping. And it wouldn't be fun. Here's another thing about the demons in Mark 5 and over in Luke 4. It says they worshiped and acknowledged Jesus. The word, it doesn't say worship. It says they bowed down. But you know what the word there is? It's proscaneo, which is a term of bowing and kissing the feet. It's the same term used for the Magi when they came to Jesus and said they knelt before Him. Every demon. <laughs> And every knee will bow before the Lord one day. And you know what? There's a lot of people that profess the name of Jesus that don't bow their knee down to him. They don't bow their heart to him. He's Lord over the supernatural. Now here's the thing when Jesus said go, the demons went in the pigs, right? And the pigs run down their water and they die. And people get all bent out of shape about the pigs. The pigs have very little to do with the story. But just think about it. If you didn't have the pigs, there wouldn't have been any confirmation for the people that the demons left the guy, other than the fact the guys are normal, but the guys might have just been temporarily normal. But they saw the demons take control of those pigs and drive them into the ocean. They went and told the townspeople, the town people came back, and what did the townspeople say? They said, they wanted to go see first, and then when they saw, they were terrified. You know why? Because again, who, who were they in the presence of? They were in the presence of Almighty God. Only God could do something like that. Only God could cast out a demon. When you are unrepentant, you need to fear God. When you're unrepentant, you need to be afraid of God. There will be some people that we evangelize that will never, ever, 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 ever bow their knee to Christ. In Revelation, it says people go through torturous judgment. I mean, it's unbelievable some of the judgment that we read about there. And it says, and still they did not repent. And so, does that relieve us of our responsibility to tell them? No, because it's the loving, compassionate thing to do. It's what Christ did when He's on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know. They don't know. He, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if I could just bring you under my wing. He's a compassionate God. He's king and He's Lord over the physical. He's Lord over the supernatural. And the most important thing is He's Lord over sin. That, that's such good news. That's, that should... That should blow our socks off, guys, <laughs> really, when you stop and think about it. He goes from where he is, and he goes to Capernaum. It says his city. That was his city. That's where he spent 90% of his time in Capernaum. Many people think he was at Peter's house there. And so they, they let this guy in. So they're in a room. They knock off the, the shingles, and they let this guy in. His friends bring him. And what's the first thing Jesus says to him? He says, take heart. Do you know what that phrase means? It means, hey, you don't have to fear me. I remember when I went in to see a three-star in the Marine Corps, I had I, had, I was up at headquarters and I, I was going, he was deciding my fate for the next couple of years because I was basically, had three options. They were gonna send me back into the Harrier program, they were gonna send me to fly multi-seat aircraft, or they going they were gonna send me out of the Marine Corps. And so I had to go in there. And I'll never forget a three-star when you're I mean when you're a lieutenant is pretty high up. I mean you're you're and this guy was had a pretty harsh reputation. So I went into that office nervous. I prayed and I just went in there and was hoping for the best. And I'll never forget when I went in there he just put his hand on me and said, "Relax, lieutenant. It's okay. What's your name?" And he put me at ease. And what Jesus does with this guy is he says, you don't have to be afraid. And I think he's addressing the issue of the guy's heart. The guy wasn't really, I mean, he wanted to be healed, but he was much more concerned in the presence of Almighty God with his sin. And what Jesus said to him is, don't be afraid your sins are forgiven now guys that is the best thing that anybody could ever say to you when the God of the universe says your sins are forgiven I I wouldn't care about anything else and that's the whole point that we as his children have been told that and nothing else should surpass that in our life in other words this guy's a paralytic And the best thing that was said to him was not pick up your mat and walk, was your sins are forgiven. The question is, do we really believe that? Do we really believe that's the most important thing? Because when you do, it affects your outlook on everything else in life. When you really believe that God's forgiveness of your sin is the absolute most important thing in the world to you, you you are amazed at who he is. You're amazed that he would choose you. You're amazed that he would forgive you. And what happens is that drives you back to a place in Matthew 5 where you're poor in spirit because you realize you don't deserve it. When you, we played that film last week of so amazing, that, that, that song. When he's on the cross because of what we did, and yet he loves us and he redeems us, I think back to all the junk in my life, all my things I should have done for him that I didn't do, all my false worship, all my terrible choices, and he loves me, that's the best thing that he could ever say is you're forgiven. Don't be afraid. And that is so... He's Lord over sin. And and so the Pharisees are sitting there and they hear this and they go, man, this guy's blaspheming. What kind of blasphemy is that? But they're thinking it and they're talking among themselves. And he knows what they're thinking and he addresses it. And he says, Listen, what's easier to say? Take up your mat and walk, be healed, or be, you know, your sins are forgiven. And I ask you guys, what's easier to say? What do you think is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven. Yeah, your sins, because no way to verify that. There's absolutely no way anybody can verify that this side of heaven. So it's a lot easier. But then he adds this he says, But so that you know that I have the authority. To forgive sin, take up your mat and walk. In other words, this is the proof that I can say your sins are forgiven. And that's what he does. And he rose, and the guy rose and went home. And it says, When the crowd saw it, they were afraid. That's really not a good word. When we see that word afraid, it conjures up a scared feeling. You know, that's not really what that word conveys there. It's a the word phobos, which we get fear from, but it's really a healthy fear. It's a reverent fear. It's almost like a. Um, Uh, like a fear in the presence of a general when you're a lieutenant kind of fear. I mean, a healthy fear. A respect for a superior kind of... That was what they were feeling when that happened. And they glorified God, it says, who had given such authority to men. You know what's interesting about that? The humanity of Jesus and the deity of God right there acknowledged. They glorified God who had given such authority to men. Jesus was God in the flesh. He was God in a human form. King, Lord over sin. So what does that mean for us? How how do we take this and apply it to our life? Well, first of all, we have to look at any storm we may be in. Do we recognize that he's Lord over the physical? And really the issue, a bigger issue is, are we trusting him? Are we trusting him? When, we t- when He does take us into that storm unexpectedly that we don't want to be in? Are we trusting Him? Do we fear the supernatural? Ephesians 6.10 says what? Put on the full armor of God. Put on the belt of truth. Take up the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness. We don't read this to grow in our knowledge. We read this to know who He is and to be equipped. To know that when we go through these difficult times we can go back it's there the spirit can pull it out be still be still be still and know that I'm God and finally no fear of sin you know what when you blow it repent when you blow it repent we don't have to fear God's wrath anymore his wrath is a non it's it's a non-player for you and me the only thing He brings into our life is loving discipline as a Father if we're if we're true believers. And that's comforting, isn't it? We don't have to fear sin. We don't have to fear Satan. And we don't have to fear storms. We don't. We just exhibit trust. Now, we don't do it well, but that's when we have each other. And that's why we're doing the one-on-one thing.